Amen. Thank you. Uh, thank you, guys. And uh, we'll be uh, worshiping in a few moments again. But if you have a Bible, please open it with me to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. If you haven't got a copy of the scriptures, either in electronic format or uh, just what I called older technology here, um, you can just raise your arm in the air and our team of ushers will be glad to distribute a copy of the scriptures to you. So uh, Luke chapter 15, and uh, we are starting a new series today entitled Coming Home. If you do receive a copy of the scriptures from the ushers, you can turn there to page 1048. We are starting this series called Coming Home, and we're doing a three-week series through the story Jesus told, which is the parable of the prodigal son. Now, as I was thinking about this, I was really mindful of the fact that so many of you have asked me, tell me, how's Vipka? Now, that's not unusual for you to ask me how my wife is doing, except for the fact that she, this weekend, has actually run a race which is 100 miles long. Yes, my wife is crazy, totally crazy. And uh, she was uh, running, she started seven o'clock Saturday morning, and she finished sometime uh, this morning. Ran through a thunderstorm, and she said, when you got to, if you, any of you spent any time in Florida, probably most of you in Florida are watching online right now, but uh, you'll know that when the storms come and the lightning uh, comes, uh, you, you gotta be careful. She said it was pretty hard to get her legs moving after 85 miles. Uh, I think we can all get that right. But uh, I was uh, thinking of this and telling someone and someone looked at me and it's kind of the second time someone has said this to me, but they said, tell me, what's your wife running from? And I thought that was a really good question, actually. Vipka, what on earth are you running from? Um, the story we're going to look at today is actually based on a guy who's doing a whole lot of running from some things. He's running from his father. He's running from his heritage. And he's running to something that he thinks is going to bring him a lot of fulfillment. But it doesn't. And then he finds himself in this situation of, of being in a place which is really uncomfortable. What do I do when I've chased after a dream and it's become a nightmare? What do I do in a moment like that? And Jesus tells this story about a son who has to wrestle with the reality that the best thing that you can do is to come home. It's a wonderful story because of the context. In fact, a group of uh, literature uh, people got together and they tasked themselves with finding out what is the greatest short story ever told. In order to qualify to be the, the greatest short story ever told, the story had to have elements to it that whenever you read it and reread it, there would be something new that you would discover. These literature critics voted the parable of the prodigal son, one of the greatest short stories ever told. In fact, it ranked right at the top. Over the next three weeks, you'll discover why. Brad and I, as we were going through this, recognized we could have spent months on this. Regulus essential will understand why. We can make a mountain out of nothing, can't we? But I'm sure you'll discover over the next three weeks that there is something that God wants to say to us through it. Now, we're doing this series as we launch 2017 because we're really mindful of the fact that we spent a, a lot of time at the close of last year talking about what we believe God wants to do through us. 
but we're really mindful in this season that before God does anything incredible through us, He often begins by doing something significant within us. And so this is a great story to turn to. Because as you read about the actions today of the younger son, as we read about the actions next week with Brad of the father, and then in week number three of the older son, we're going to find aspects that God wants to shape our hearts and deal with us in. So we're excited about this series. We're excited about it because we think there's some heart work that God wants to do. And we've come to believe that the heart work is actually the hard work of the Christian faith. Everything starts here. And I want to encourage you in this series, don't run away. But if God speaks to you, do the right thing. Come home. So let's have a look, shall we, at the story beginning in verse 11 of Luke chapter 15. Jesus, we read, continued. Uh, Stop there. It's one of the reasons why I could have spent months on this one. Jesus continued. Continued what? He continued the dialogue that he was having with those folks that were introduced to in verses 1 and 2. Look at this, verse 1 and 2. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So Jesus continued this dialogue with these religious leaders, these religious people that had started because these religious people were upset that a rabbi, a teacher, a so-called spiritual leader would spend significant time with people who would never be seen dead in the synagogue. That's the context. And so Luke chapter 15 continues this conversation. Now, the first part of the conversation basically involved Jesus telling a story about some sheep, about someone, basically, who goes away from the flock, from what they know to be right, true, honorable, just, simply because life gets so busy, they get so distracted, that before they know anything, they realize they're so far away from home. That's the first story. It's about someone who gets lost because they get distracted. The second story is basically about something that gets lost because it gets caught up in all the dirt. The third story here, the one that we're going to read, is not the story about someone who gets caught up in all the dirt. It's not the story of someone who basically gets lost and finds themselves so far from home because they've just casually got so distracted by life that before they know it, they've gone so far. No, this is the story of someone who gets lost because they willfully and intentionally disobey everything they know to be true and right. This is the continuation of the story. And the point with all three stories is simply this. How do people come home? How do they come home if they found themselves so distracted that their relationship with God isn't as strong as it once was? 
How do they come home when they find themselves caught up in all the dirt? And then thirdly, how does a person come home when they wake up and realize, oh my word, what have I done? Is it even possible for me to come home? And remember, that's really the context that the religious leaders had in mind when it came to the tax collectors and the sinners. These people are too far gone to come home. Jesus tells them this story and basically says, really? So he continues. Let's have a look at the rest of this. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me the share of my estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Now my portion, it just stops right there. So this is a story about a son who willfully wanders away. Now in this first portion of the story, as Jesus tells it, there are three shocking revelations to the original hearers. The first thing that would have shocked them about this story is that the way Jesus tells this, it's pretty clear that the younger son, in asking for his inheritance, is basically desiring his father to be dead. Father, I, you are dead to me, so I am going to act as if you are dead to me. Now, this, this interpretation is supported through a number of things, particularly verse 13, this phrase, not long after that. Not long after, the son had gone to the father and said, Father, please give me my share of the inheritance. Not long after the father had done so, the son packs up his bags and he gets out of there. Now, this, these words, not long after that, reveal the heart attitude of the son, but it also reveals to us something significant about the father that I am basically going to touch on today. Firstly, notice this. Notice that the father obliged at great cost to him. Now, Brad's going to pick up on this next week, but please notice this. Some of you may well be parenting prodigals, and you've been there, and you've watched your son or your daughter drift further and further away from home, and you found yourself often in the beginning fighting against that when the requests would come, when the situations would come. You'd find yourself trying to reason, trying to argue, trying to debate. Notice what the father does. He basically lets him go. Brad's going to pick up on that next week. But what I need you to note is that this cost the father a great deal. 
Look at these words from a great book by a guy by the name of Gary Burge. He says this, a village father like this would not have cash assets to divide. Brad keeps telling us the two things that matter in the ancient world is land and family. They wouldn't have cash assets, but they would have land, buildings, animals, tools. For him to divide his estate and give disposable cash to his son, he must sell what he has to whom? To his village. It would typically take one entire year, typically, to raise that kind of asset. If you want to do it quicker than that, you lose so much. Not long after. He doesn't have cash, so he has to sell it. Who buys it? The village. And if he doesn't sell it, then clearly his son will. We'll see in a moment that it's his son that sells it. And this starts the scandal spinning in town. Why is he selling? What could his son have said? What if our sons get this idea in their heads? Not only is the father's honor betrayed, but the entire village's values are offended. This village would be angry. That should be there, not they. The boy wants the cash in his sonship. You get the point here. Not long after that, a great cost to the father humiliated in front of the village with the entire village wondering what the implications of this is for everyone else, the father agrees. Secondly, what we note is the younger son had to get out of town for his own safety. The passage I put up on there twice now, Deuteronomy chapter 21 verses 15 uh, through here to the end of verse 21, talk about how the inheritance would have been given out to the sons. Deuteronomy 21, 15 through 17, talks about how the younger son would essentially receive a double portion of the inheritance. He would get twice as much. The younger son would therefore get one portion of it. But that same passage, verses 18 through 21, talks about what a father should do and what a village should do to a child who acts as if his father were dead. Essentially, the village should stone him. Maybe now, next week, you'll understand a little bit more about why the father runs to the boy. (laughs) He's trying to prevent Deuteronomy 21, 18 through 21, from becoming real. See, it doesn't matter what you've done. What you need to see is the love of the Father will always outrun any punishment that you deserve. So in this context then, the parable begins by revealing that this younger son basically wants his father dead or acts in such a way that his father is dead to him. He does not think about his father's shame. He does not think about his father's future. He thinks simply and only of himself. That's the first shocking revelation to the hearers of this original parable. The second revelation in this parable would have simply have been this. The younger son abandons his heritage because sonship is something he simply doesn't want. In this part of the parable, the son does some pretty shocking things to an everyday Jew. I want to mention three of those things. Firstly, the son gets together all he had. 
Not long after this, the son gets together all he had. This would have been shocking. You see, the phrase here in the Greek means he turns it into cash. So clearly, the father grants the request to give the inheritance to his two children, and then the younger son decides to cash it all in. And how quickly? It would have typically taken a year. He does it quickly. The value that is sold for is less when you do a quick sale and basically puts his father at risk. This is a shock. It would have been a shock to everybody that heard it. And what does this mean? It basically means the son is rejecting his sonship. And why does he do it? To fund a reckless lifestyle. Now, this isn't just shocking to an original Jewish audience. Some of you may well be thinking, yeah, if my son would do this, I'll tell you where he could go quickly. I mean, imagine what it would be like if your son or daughter came to you and said, hey, could you do me a favor, Dad? Could you actually give me my portion of the inheritance right now? And you say, why on earth would I want to do that? To fund, your, uh, to fund your, your student fees or what? Oh, no, Dad, it's for all of those wild college parties I'm going to have when I'm out of here. It's a shocking to us, this, isn't it? It's like, what are they doing? Don't you realize you're cashing in your inheritance for a night of fun. Really? The second thing that's shocking here and shows us that he's abandoning his sonship is this phrase that he headed for the far country. Now, to the original hearers, the far country was a, basically a code word, a slang word for the region called the Decapolis. Most of Jesus' teaching was right up there in the Galilee region. As Jesus shares this parable, he is on the road to Jerusalem, but he started way up north in the country, and he's probably around the Galilee region. And as he would be in that Galilee region, he would basically, from Capernaum, and you can see uh, Capernaum now, that's where he kind of based himself, they can basically stand in Capernaum, and if you've ever been to the Holy Land, you realize this, you can stand and you can look at the big mountain on the far side. That's the Decapolis region. So as Jesus tells this parable, they can see the far country. I love the way that Jesus triggers the senses when he teaches. It's the far country. And that would have horrified them. And the reason why is made clear in the Jewish writings called the Talmud and the early church fathers as well. Basically, the inhabitants of this region are said to belong to the seven pagan Canaanite nations driven out of the promised land by Joshua. The Decapolis basically gets its name from 10 cities that were in league together. And basically, the Jewish writings tell us that these inhabitants came from the nations that Joshua drove out of the Promised Land. So you get the point here. Here is a guy who not only wants his father dead, but actually is willing to trade in his sonship to go in league with all of those people that stand in direct opposition to the will of his father. He is really here going so far the other way. Uh, thirdly, what we discover here is that he squanders his wealth on what is called wild living. Now again, the original hearers of this would have heard this and they would have been taken immediately to Proverbs 28 and verse seven. A discerning son, Proverbs says, heeds instruction, but a champion of gluttons disgraces his father. You're getting the picture of the story here, right? This is horrific. This is shocking. 
The first parable talks about someone getting innocently, kind of swept away in the tide. The second story talks about someone just getting involved and finding themselves trapped in all the dirt of life. But this story, wow, this is a guy who abandons his father, hurts him, and then basically acts in such a way that sonship has never mattered to him anyway. What's interesting with this is that he abandons his sonship for paganism. This is a guy who's in willful, active rebellion. And whenever someone's like that, who has heard the promise of God, who has grown up in an environment where the goodness, the faithfulness, the mercy of God has been known, God loves a person like that. And invariably, people like that typically will come on seasons of trial and hardship. And the question is, what are they going to do? So that's the way that the story goes. Famine strikes the land. Now picture it again. Jesus is in that Galilee region. Okay, They're looking out at the far country as he's saying this. Famine strikes that region. Well, if famine strikes the Decapolis region, don't you think it would have struck the Galilee region as well? Of course it would have. But the son recognizes in this moment, I could return home, but you know what? He's not ready to return home. So he comes up with a plan. This is what I'm going to do. And we read about this in the next verses. He went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country hired himself out. I love the word play here. You see, the word hired means to enjoin. It means to glue. It means to cement yourself together. Do you notice the picture that's been built in the two relationships? Over here, his relationship with his father meant nothing to him. He brought humiliation to his father, and he essentially ripped himself away from his father. One of the analogies we can use for this is, for those of you who have gone through divorce, you know this experience yourself. Some people think that divorce is just this casual legal contract, but it's not. It's a ripping away of what God put together. It is painful, and it hurts. On the one relationship, the younger son rips himself away from his father and from his family. And next week, we'll discover the pain that the father experienced. And then in this new set of relationship, what does he do? He glues himself. He glues himself to someone else. And so there are two scenes here then. The first scene is the son forcefully ripping himself away. And the second scene is essentially him joining himself to someone who he should not be attached to. This would have been completely shocking to them. They would have heard this and thought, what is he doing? And then it would have been clear. Well, it's pretty obvious, right? They would have said, not only is he abandoning his father, he is completely abandoning his entire heritage. The wonder of this story 
uh, one of the wonders of the story is actually what happens next. We read in now those verses that the citizen of that country, who is basically a Gentile nobleman, basically comes up with a plan. That plan is pretty simple. In times of famine, noblemen, citizens, okay, were used to being followed around. See, there's a high sense of social responsibility back then. When someone is hungry, give them bread. When someone is thirsty, give them a drink. So in times of famine like this, these noblemen would find themselves swamped with people in need. Rather than going back to his father, he's not ready for that yet. He actually says, you know what I'm going to do? I am going to glue myself to someone who, is, who lives a life against, totally contrary to everything my father stands for. And what do, we, what do these citizens do? They actually come up with a plan to get rid of their hangers-on. The citizen sends the prodigal to the fields to feed the pigs. Any of you who know anything about Jewish culture would realize why he did that. Pigs and Jews don't go together. Surely no Jew would stoop this low, would they? Again, one of the hardest things. For anybody dealing with a situation, or for any parent watching a child deal with a situation, it is getting to that moment and realizing, wait a minute, in my pride, I am being so stupid. One of the hardest lessons I think it, uh, for a parent to learn is that sometimes our children learn their lessons the hard way. Any of you experienced that? Through some of the actions that our children will do, you look at this and you say, didn't you actually see that that would happen? And they look at you with this blank stare and they're like, no. He didn't see this, didn't see this coming. And rather than returning to his father, what he decides to do is he decides to take the guy up on the offer and go work in the fields. Wow. And then we read this, and again, I love the wordplay here. He came to his senses. This is Jewish vernacular, kind of slang for, he had that mirror moment. In that moment, he realized how far he'd sunk. Paul talks about this in the book of Romans. He talks about it in the sense of us becoming alive to the law, or the law becoming alive in us. It's that moment when we wake up and we realize, oh my Lord, what have I done? For the first time in that moment, probably in a long time, we actually see ourselves as we truly are. Paul says that's the law becoming alive in us. The way I've explained it to you in the past is by way of an analogy or an illustration of suppose I was invited to a dinner party and I go to this dinner party and of course I think I'm someone of means, I don't really, but just work with me a second, that's so proud, but it'll probably work. And I, I get there and I notice that people are really standoffish with me. I think, okay, was my message too hard last week? Did I do make some bad decisions? What's going on here? Because everyone is just so standoffish and I'm like, what's going on? And the whole night goes like this. 
And then I go home and I'm scratching my head. I'm thinking, what on earth happened? And I go into the bathroom to flush my teeth and, and I look in the mirror and there I see I've got a big booger under my nose. And in that moment, my state becomes real to me because for the first time, I actually see myself as I truly am. Now, the, the mistake in this analogy, of course, is why didn't anybody tell me that night? Well, in this parable, they probably, he probably was told. But you know what? He's just one of those kids that learns the hard way. And when you parent a kid that learns the hard way, one of the hardest things to do is to just let them go. But invariably, there comes a moment where he comes to his senses, where he sees himself in the mirror. He sees himself as he truly is. And in that moment, there's that aha moment, and he says, oh my Lord, what have I done? The, the verse actually tells us that he wakes up. I love this. A Jewish rabbi from years ago said this, when the Israelites are reduced to carapods, then they repent. Jesus is a master storyteller, isn't he? See how much of the history he brings in when he tells this story? So there this guy is in the field with all the pots, and something from his heritage comes back to him, and he wakes up. It says he'd reached the point where even these pods were desirable to him. And note, by the way, there are two types of carob pods that the pigs would eat. The first type is a Syrian type, which is really sweet, and it was nice to eat. But the context of the story leads us to believe that it's the second type, the wild type of pod that the pigs were eating because it's famine. They were bitter, they were not sweet, and they were awful to eat. He had got to the point where he was so hungry that even that which is detestable was likable to him. That's how low he went. And then in that moment, he wakes up and he says, I've got to go home. I'm going to go to my father and I'm going to say, Father, I've sinned against heaven, which for the Jew was against God because they wouldn't say the name of God. Heaven is where the rule and reign of God is perfect. I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And he dreams up the speech. And this leads us to the third reveal. And this is the one that most of us miss. This is the one that most commentators miss. It's how a willful, disobedient son who's acted as if his father were dead, has basically denied his heritage, finds his way home. The reveal is this. The younger son understands repentance as a 50-50 scheme, but what he's about to learn is the way back follows the exact same path as the way in. Now, to understand this, you need to understand what is going on. The son, part of the younger son's plan is to say, okay, father, I'm not worthy to be called your son, but please could you make me a hired servant? Jesus' use of this word is strategic and definite for a reason. He's getting to the, the importance of repentance and what it means. Now, back in those days, there were three types of servant. The youngest son uses hired servant, not the other two choices, and for good reason. But it tells us something. 
It tells us what often happens in the heart of a person who realizes they're lost, realizes they need God's help, but feels as though they need to do something to be allowed back in. Because surely when you've acted this badly, when you've treated the people you love this mercilessly, surely they won't simply open their arms and welcome you home, will they? Three types of servant. He could have used all of these, but he didn't. See, the first type of servant was doulos, or bondsman. These are the people, they worked on the estate. They're almost a part of the family. He didn't say, hey, when I come back, could you at least make me a, a doulos, a bond servant? He didn't even think he, he could attain that. Secondly, he says, he doesn't say oikotes, which is a household servant or slave. That's the lower class. They, they minister or they work under the doulos, under the bondsman. He doesn't say this. You see, he's a son who feels that because of his behavior, he's gone so far, he can't even become someone like this. Now, he says this, Mithios, hired servant. See, the thing with a hired servant is it's outside labor. Hired on a daily basis, the master would make the phone call, or often the bondsman make the phone call, say, hey, we've got a job today, do you want some work? He'd say, yes. The guy would actually take the job, come in for a day's work, get his money, and then go home. <laughs> some people interpret this the wrong way. Some people interpret this to mean that the son really isn't that repentant. Because if he was repentant, he would have actually recognized that the father would have welcomed him home as a son. He would have recognized, if he truly were repentant, that the father doesn't want him at arm's length. The father wants him in his home. And of course, from the Christian perspective, that's true because that's the God that we know. The Bible says this is love. Even while we were lost, even while we were still in sin, Christ died for us. But that's reading the Christian story into a Jewish context. Remember, Jesus hadn't died yet. And so many commentators will say, this is the example of a young son who wants the blessings of sonship, the blessings that God gives, but wants to keep his father at arm's length. I don't believe that's what's going on here. Why? Because of verses one and two that we looked at right in the beginning of this uh, message. The context here is a very simple one. How does a lost person come home? How do they come home? What does a person who is lost through intentionally and willfully disobeying God and hurting others, what do they need to do to come back home? And what the younger son does here is he actually brings out, through his actions, the idea of repentance that was typical amongst the religious teachers of the day. Let me help you understand that. The younger son knows that what he's done is wrong, and he plans a way back. And this plan is based on a conventional understanding of forgiveness and repentance. At the time Jesus told the story, repentance was seen as a work people did to earn God's favor. The son knows he needs his father's help. Repentance is his work to get the father to meet him halfway. 
In other words, the son realizes that without his father's grace and mercy, he's going to get nothing. But he wrongly thinks that the means to getting mercy is actually what he does, whether he's truly repentant. Now, there's a part of this, obviously, that is so true. But there's a a part of this that is so wrong. This is what differentiates the Jewish understanding of repentance from the Christian understanding of repentance. This is what Jesus is getting at in the story. You see, for a Jew, they believed that obedience was the work that we did that ultimately made it possible for us to earn God's forgiveness. Repentance is a work. But that's not the Christian message. The Christian message is, no, repentance is the way that you receive the forgiveness, not earn it. How many of you have ever been hurt by someone, and they've come back to you and they've said, Mom, Dad, please forgive me. Maybe it's a brother or a sister. Maybe it's a best friend. And they've come to you and they've said, I am so sorry that I treated you like this. And you're a Christian, and so there's a part of your mind that's going, I know I need to forgive them, I know I need to forgive them, but then we do this, don't we? Okay, I'll forgive you, but you need to what? Earn it. You need to earn my trust. Part of that's wise. But a part of that is based on a Jewish understanding of repentance that Jesus basically says, this isn't the love and the compassion of the Father. Repentance is not something we do to earn God's favor. Because guess what? There is nothing that we can do do to earn God's favor. This is the horror of the story. It's called the horror of grace. The horror of the story is it doesn't matter how far you've gone, how far you've run, what you've done. The horror of the story is when you come back to your father and you say, Dad, I'm sorry, he doesn't treat you as a doulos. He doesn't treat you as an oikotes. He doesn't treat you as a mythos. He treats you as a son. He treats you as a daughter. And he says, son, welcome home. This is the wonder of the Christian faith. See, Christians believe that All of that stuff that we struggle with, all the hurts, all the habits, all the hang-ups, those things that we think we we got the better of and they keep coming back and biting us, we recognize there's nothing that we can do to, to appease the wrong that we've done. And the good news is there's nothing we have to do because in Jesus, the Father did it all. And next week you'll discover that what this younger son realizes is the way he gets back in with the family is the way he got in in the first place. How does a son become a son of a family? Through the expressive love of a father, of a mother. That's true whether you are biological children of your parents or whether you are adopted into a family. It is still true, you become a part of a family because guess what? Someone expressed love and compassion to bring you in. Victor and I are praying that we're in the closing days of being able to adopt two children. Those children will simply become a part of our family. Why? Because of an expressive love that is shown. But that love needs to be received. And that's what I love about this story. 
the way the son gets back in is the way that he got in in the first place. The younger son is an expression of his father's love. That's how he came to be a part of that family. The way back is through the magnanimous expression of his father's love. In a moment, we're going to worship together again. But as we do that, I'm mindful of a number of realities that we've already seen played out in the first service. I'm mindful of the fact that some of you here are parenting prodigals, and as I go through this, your heart is being torn because you do feel that your children have been ripped away from you, and you wrestle, you struggle, and as you listen to this, your heart is bleeding. As we worship, I want to encourage you, respond to God. The Father knows what this is like, not because he's God and knows everything, but because guess what? He's experienced it personally just like you. As we worship, these altars are going to be open. If you need to come and just quietly surrender this to the Lord again, then do so. It's one of the things I love about this church. This is always open. Secondly, I'm mindful that some of you, you may not be prodigal children, but you've played around in the Decapolis a fair bit. There's a part of your life where you're not totally surrendered to God in the way that you should be. And you're still in the promised land, but you know it's only a quick shot over to the Decapolis, and you can see it. As we sing this song, it talks about coming to the altar. We've already heard the song once. It's now a time to participate in it. As we do that, maybe you need to come home. Maybe you need to say, Father, I've had enough of living in the far country. I'm giving this to you. Thirdly, there may be some of you here who right now are prodigal. You may be listening to this, and you may be thinking, I am in the far country. Uh, that could be true whether you come to church every week. You know there's an area of your life you've not surrendered to the Lordship of Christ. You know that there's an area of your life where when nobody knows it, you're living in such rebellion that sonship in those moments is shown to be something that you do not want. You know what the Father is saying to you this morning? Come home. But Craig, you don't know what I've done. I'll say it again. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how far you've come. The Father says to you, welcome home. Why don't you stand with me? We're going to worship together. And as this song is sung, it may be new to some of you. Sing along when you can. Again, these altars are open. If you need to come and you need to surrender this to God, then just do so. But let's just thank God that there was an altar on which His Son, Jesus Christ, died. And in that moment, the way to forgiveness was open for us all. Father, we thank you that in this story, we get a glimpse of your heart. We get a glimpse of what it's like to feel pain when our own children go off into a far country. But Father, more than that, we get to see how easy it is to come home. And so Father, that moment is now for us. And as we worship you, I pray that your Holy Spirit will come and he would just do a work in our hearts 
help some of us come to our senses about what we're holding on to and need to lay down. But more than anything else, Father, help us come to that point of saying, Father, I want to come home. God, we love you and we worship you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's worship. And again, if you need to, the altars are open. out of here but as I do that I'm, I'm mindful that we're going to meet a lot of people this week here who are prodigals and in moments like that it's going to be really easy to, to put on the religious hat of verses one and two and I just want to encourage you this week to remember what it felt like for you to be far away 
and to remember what brought you back. Paul says it's the kindness and the goodness, the mercy of God that brings people back. Be the hands and feet of Jesus this week. Be slow to anger, quick to show compassion. And as you do that, I want to encourage you also that next week we're going to talk about this father who was willing to embarrass himself and to give people the space that they needed in order to come back home. And next week, that's going to be Brad's message. And I'm sure that as you go through this week, there are going to be people that you're going to meet that may well be prodigals. And I want to give you a challenge. Is there someone that you can invite? who may be living that prodigal reality, just to be here next week and to hear what it means to actually accept the Christian faith. So let me encourage you through this week, if there are people that you meet, then just say, hey, do you wanna to come to church with me next week? And next week, Pastor Brad will give a very clear message about the kind of heart of the Father that we all worship. But until then, I pray that you would go from this place knowing that the Father loves you. And it doesn't matter what you will do this week, what hurt you may hang on to, what hang up you may not get over, what habit you may return to. Just remember this, that next week, and even every day of this week, your Father is there, standing with arms wide open, and says, come on home. Father, I thank you so much for the goodness and the undeserved favor that you have shown to us. And Father, I pray that we would remember this week what it felt like for us to be lost and far off. And I pray that as we encounter those that are living that prodigal reality, or are going into their Decapolis when they really need to stay into that promised land, or who are parenting prodigals and it just feels as though their heart is breaking. Father, may we be the hands and feet of Jesus to them. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, guys. Thanks for being here. We'll see you all next week.